Hello and welcome to Rewildology, the show that explores conservation, travel, and rewilding the planet. I'm your host, Brooke Mitchell-Norman, conservation biologist and adventure traveler. February was such a fun month sharing our Women in Conservation Science series. We sat down with three incredible women conservation scientists from around the world and ended this series with a compilation of advice from 12 of the show's former guests. If you missed an episode and would like to hear a little snippet before diving into the full thing, check out these highlights to see if you might want to go back and listen to the full episode in its entirety. All right, let's dive in. For the first episode in our Women in Conservation Science series, we met Harold Nike, African Program Manager for Save the Snakes and a PhD student at the University of Witwatersrand in South Africa. So how do you exactly study animals that are really good at not being seen or found or giving you any sign that they're there? Like, how do you actually study snakes? From someone who has no clue. <laughs> That's a very good question. I th- you have to find the hotspot. So, I mean, you know, typically, you, you, you know, we've had experts in the field for a really long time. So every student coming in will find or, you know, a field site that is quite popular for certain snakes species. Different, obviously, different regions, you find different snake species, which are quite dominant. And so it, it rather becomes more about the question that you're trying to ask as a scientist. Mm. You know, mm-hmm. what are you trying to figure out about the species? Are you trying to figure out the movement behavior of certain, certain species? To give you an example, my professor that really kind of inspired a lot of my interest in, in snakes and snake biology and evolution really became interested in the movement of puff adders, um, which are the, these fat little thick snakes that you find here in South Africa and most of other parts of um, Africa as well. But we're quite interested in, you know, learning more about how such a slow-moving ambush foraging snake moves from place to place, how long it takes them to move. So that requires, you know, different methodologies so first of all, how are we going to track the snake? Well, you know, we need transmitters and the transmitters then need to be implanted in the snake. And then you have to track the snake. So it, it takes a huge chunk of time for the, re- the researcher themselves to track a snake every day to ensure that they can still keep track of the snake because otherwise you're likely to lose the, the placement of the snake. It might be okay when you're tracking something like a slow-moving puff adder, but if you're tracking something like a fast-moving cobra, they can move large distances. So that's mm. one example. The other example is um, some of the work that I'm doing with behavior. So with behavior, it's largely observational. Again, it just means that you know you need the necessary ethical clearance and research permits to access snakes in the wild. And then if you have a facility like Pittsburgh Reptile Center, you can bring them here, you can house them and and create certain rooms or arenas or whatever kind of observational area that is required for whatever topic you're looking at. And then you kind of set it up that way. So there's a lot of things that go into 
thinking about how you're going to work with snakes. You know, they're not, they're like pretty much other animals when it comes to getting the right research permits, getting the right ethical clearances. Um, but I will say that, you know, when it comes to reptiles specifically, even from the research side, there isn't really a lot of interest or, and there hasn't been as much of a re an interest, obviously, when you, when you're like me and you live in a country where mammals kind of take the preference in so many, so many ways. That's pretty universal. <laughs> I think every, you know, I think pretty much everywhere mammals definitely went out over the herps, which is unfortunate. I mean, I my big love is happens to be a mammal, but we need to we need to know and understand all of our species if we're going to properly save our biodiversity. Yeah, because I've just wondered about that. Is snakes don't have necks, so you can't put a collar on it. They don't have legs, so you can't put an ankle bracelet around it. They slither in things, so you can't put a tag on it. So I'm like, how in the world do you actually study snakes to understand their biology and their and, and what they do, really, like what, what they do on a daily basis? Because it just seems that when we hear about snakes, it's not usually in a good way. You know, someone happens to stumble upon one in some because they're running, you know, at, at, in Colorado, you know, that's a really big thing with rattlesnakes that runners might go out or dogs get taken quite often. So it's not really good that we hear good things about them when they're, they're just living their life. They're not, they're not intentionally doing anything. So with that, though, that brings up the next really important question, and that is their conservation. So how are our snakes doing maybe on a global scale? So overall, what's, what's the trend happening with snakes? And then maybe let's also then uh, zoom in on South Africa and, and maybe some of the species that you work with and, and what are they experiencing and, and how are they faring? Yeah, sure. So just a few years ago, maybe three or four years ago, there was a huge paper that came out that actually showed there's, there's a massive decline happening in a lot of our world's reptiles. We know snakes that snakes to be quite resilient and, and they they are. There are a fair number of threatened species around the world, also because a lot of snakes are quite endemic to certain locations. So if they only occur on one island in the, you know, the South Pacific or something, then, you know, they're immediately classed as threatened. And um, you have to try and figure out, is there some kind of decline? Are they, you know, threatened because, you know, the island is being deforested or, you know, there's some kind of external environmental threat. On the whole, snakes are okay. Um, like I said, they, they are quite resilient. Um, but the biggest challenge with snakes is that we actually don't know what's happening. So mm -hmm. snakes mm -hmm. are one of the most understudied species in the world. And as much as I mentioned that the fact that you can put a tracker in some snakes, they have to be big enough. And most snakes are actually like really, really tiny and super thin, which means that we have no way to really track what they're doing, um, how they're behaving and, and what kind of threats they're facing. There's, you know, a lot of threats that are facing other species like, you know, habitat transformation, urban development, just natural habitat loss. And, and human wildlife conflict are all affecting snakes as well. 
but we really have no idea the impact that they're having on the population numbers because population numbers are not easy or population studies are not necessarily that easy to be done. And so, you know, when it comes down to South Africa specifically, we also, I mean, our, our most of our snakes are classed as least concerned by the IUCN, but the truth is in there are these small little pockets that are experiencing massive transformation. People that we speak to that have lived in a location will tell us that, you know, even snake numbers are not what they used to be about 10 years ago. Mm. So the truth is that there is a decline happening. Whether that means that we need to start caring about it right now or in the future is is up to us. And And so someone like myself as a snake conservationist it's my duty to kind of prioritize that and say, okay, well, maybe they're not declining right now, but what happens when all the rhinos and elephants and giraffes of the world are are gone? You know, what species are we going to then, you know, be looking after? And even if snakes are around then, we don't really know what numbers they're going to be around in. And so it means that we have to stop looking at it from a, species-specific point of view and start protecting biodiversity as a whole. Next, we sat down with Coral Wolf, Conservation Science Program Manager at Island Conservation. So, obviously, restoring islands has fantastic and amazing benefits to the island ecosystem itself. You know, we can see these, remove these rats and all of a sudden nesting birds are coming back and on and on and um, so many examples that I'm sure you can give. But our conversation is the next level of this. And so could you maybe give us some information on how exactly is our islands and seas connected and how does restoring islands then benefit the surrounding sea? Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, my background, uh, what I didn't say at the beginning, you know, I'm a terrestrial biologist. So all of my exposure up until recently has been on the islands, not around them, despite my name. So um, I love your name. (laughs) (laughs) I love your name so much. (laughs) So, you know, we as researchers, we have this tunnel vision sometimes. Right. And I think what was appealing to me about research on islands was that there were a little there were boundaries. You know, I could pick a place and really get to know it. And and those were artificial. And so I think that's really what we're we're learning and what's been really cool about the research that's been coming out in really the last you know 10 years or so is that these specialties, you know, are these artificial silos we create as a terrestrial biologist aren't, you know, we need to be looking outside of those. Uh, so maybe one example to give you kind of of where I came from when I was learning about these connections with the marine environment. A project I was involved in was on Palmyra Atoll. And we, it's an atoll a thousand miles south of Hawaii. And 
our organization, along with U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and the Nature Conservancy, worked on a rat eradication project there to help protect some of the terrestrial biodiversity. That was the original stated goal. And um, so we collected, you know, baseline data there looking at how, you know, what does the vegetation look like before the rat eradication, for example? And this was a place that it was, you know, we have photos. I, um, hopefully we can share with you, but it's just amazing. The, the native forest, we went back just one month after the rat eradication. And, you know, one of these plots just had a carpet of, of seedlings. Mm. And it was just, you know, I go back to the lab and look at the pre-eradication data. There wasn't anything like that. We weren't seeing, you know, it was, we had assumed that the rats had been eating the seeds and the seedlings, but really hadn't, you know, you don't know, like, exactly how much of an impact they're having until you see that release right from their predation and you know went back a year later and those seedlings are growing and these this native forest is now able to regenerate on its own and it was it was just really impactful for me and we are seeing you know the same thing with other species within that native forest the coconut crabs they the, those populations do better in that native forest the arthropod diversity is higher seabird nesting that's where that forest is providing seabird nesting habitat and so you know you start seeing all these connections within the terrestrial environment and around that same time, um, because there's marine researchers there at Palmyra Atoll as well, Doug McCauley, who's now at UC Santa Barbara, he came out with a paper looking at some of the marine mesh metrics. And one thing he found was in his team was that manta ray abundance was much higher around the native forest coastline. Mm. And the connection he drew was that the seabird roosting and nesting in these native forests, in the native trees, was helping to fertilize the soil, which helped to increase the coastal nutrients. And then, therefore, the abundance of plankton increased along those coastlines, which attracted manta rays, you know, their food resource being plankton. And so all of a sudden, all these connections were flowing down into the ocean. And it was in contrast to some of this, uh, there's also coconut palm forests on this atoll. So you could really see a distinction between where um, manta rays were spending more time versus, uh, you know, along the native forest versus the coconut palm forest. And that would just, I mean, it blew my mind. It was, there was all of a sudden all these new areas to explore. And since then, all these other marine researchers have, have dug into this, you know, the connectivity between the land and sea. Mm. Yeah, which totally brings up your paper. <laughs> That's the main topic of today. So let's just start diving in. Oh. That literally and figuratively, this this paper that you were part of writing, which is could be very revolutionary on the way we look at island and marine you know, restoration moving forward, which is, oh, it's so fantastic and just, you know, just gets me tingly. Like, you know, what what's the future for how we are going to rewild our islands? And so, yeah, could you actually let, let's just start learning from you and what you all wrote about and and discovered. So. Could you take me like, what is the name of your paper and maybe what are some of the highlight takeaways? We don't need to go down to like the, the super nitty gritty, but if what is the, the things that we should know about what you all published in this historic paper? 
Sure. So the paper is called Harnessing Island Ocean Connections to Maximize Marine Benefits of Island Conservation. And it was co-led by Stuart Sandin, who's at Scripps Institution of Oceanography at UC San Diego, and Penny Becker, who um, works with me at Island Conservation. And I guess maybe to set the stage, I think one of the things that was really clear early on, and so I should maybe take a step back first and say that, you know, the paper brought together a large group of researchers. So it was experts from a variety of fields representing all different expertises. As I was saying, you know, my background is definitely is terrestrial. And so it was starting to think about this holistic approach to islands. And historically, you know, human societies living along the coast understood and managed terrestrial and marine natural resources together. Um, the Hawaiians have a ridge to reef model uh, called the Ahupua'a system. And so we, we knew, you know, historically people knew that these systems were linked. And what had happened is, you know, Western researchers, science had, had begun to cut up, catch up and break down these silos. So there had been growing research that linked seabird communities with faster growing reef populations around those islands, increased rates of coral recovery after bleaching events from climate change. Um, some other research out of New Zealand demonstrated that high seabird densities had high, high, higher biodiversity of macroalgae. So there started to be all these connections that, we, that researchers were pulling together. And um, they're all built on these natural experiments where islands with high density of seabirds were compared with those that had low density of seabirds. And what was clear is that the high density of seabird islands also had no invasive predator mammals compared mm. to the low density seabird mm. islands where invasive predator mammals were present. So the purpose of the paper was to expand our understanding of how and when the eradication of invasive mammals could be utilized as a tool just to benefit these ocean conservation and management goals. You know, we have specific examples like the one in New Zealand and some of these other ones that have come out of the Chagos Archipelago and the Indian Ocean. But are there generalities that we can make? Um, what can we learn about these land-sea linkages and where should we be going? Third in February, we had an inspirational conversation with Frida Laura, PhD, shark researcher, dive master, and co-founder of Orcas. So that's really cool. And the perfect <laughs> transition to what yeah. came next. So I don't want to spoil it. I want you to do it. So you tell me and tell those listening, what, what's the big thing that came to be after that? And how exactly did all the pieces come together to build what you're currently working on? Yeah, so in that time, I I had like, this group of friends, and some of them are drummers, some of them are managers, lawyers, everything, and they were all related to the ocean. We were good friends, all divers. It came to be that all of us were women in that moment, and we had one, one night a dinner with some friends, and and one of them told us that why not to start an NGO, uh, because we were all 
related to the ocean and we were very worried about the conservation of the place. So we're like, yeah, let's let's do it now. And in that time, this group of, of women organized themselves and started working with the community. Okay. So I remember that was in July. In July, well, in Mexico, we have a fishing ban that uh, lasts three months. So in these three months, we are not able to, well, uh, it's not allowed to catch or sell any kind of fish uh, of sharks and rays. So we had this fishing ban for three months. And I remember going diving to this famous seamount two hours from home and seeing 20 silky sharks every time we were going there, taking photos and doing all that. And it was beautiful, but at the same time, it was sad because we knew that when the fishing ban was over, they will be able to catch them legally. And we're like, no, like we were so like happy and at the same time, like desperate because we were like, we know reality. This is totally normal. We don't like it, but we have to do something, no? And the first thing we, we decided to do was to look for the fishermen camp that currently are catching sharks and talk to them just to see how they are doing, if they need some help, and negotiate with them to know what are the solutions. And this is how we started the NGO. ORCAS, <laughs> that is uh, Organization CAS, is a, is a game of, of the words. Yeah. <laughs> it started like that because we, we had this community, it's called Aguamarga. It's a community that is uh, one hour um, south from La Paz. And uh, we are currently working with 10 fishermen that are catching sharks. So the idea was to propose them a way to transition it from shark fishing to other economic activities like uh, nature-based tourism and science. So uh, we have been working with them for over a year, a year and a half. And yes, it's going pretty well. They are super confident now. They really enjoy doing it. We have been able to give them courses for first aid. They they take a lot of capacitations about ecology, about sharks. They totally understand why we are doing this. And actually, like now, they are very worried about conserving the area, no? Because they see the potential. They, they obviously understand that sharks and the nature itself is worth more alive than death. So now when we see, for example, a troller in front of their town, they're like, no, like... <laughs> We have to take them out. So, yeah, it's it's totally a different mindset now. And let's go back to day one, because I think a lot of us that have been in conservation for a while, there's a lot of layers to this. So you, you amazing ladies, decided that this is the community that we want to talk to and we want to approach. Can you take me back to that day or that week or or when this whole thing started, because I imagine uh, having experience in my own work and sitting down with so many people, most people aren't receptive to strangers coming in and telling them that their way of life is wrong, which I understand too. I come from a a very rural place myself. I I understand if someone comes to me and we're like, I'm sorry that your way of life is not correct. So, I mean, who wants to hear that? So take me back to square one. How exactly did you did you guys approach this community and and how did you get them on board? Isn't really the right term, but to help them see the value of what they had and that they didn't just have to fish it like they they could 
use it in a more sustainable way. So how did that happen? How, what was day one? And then how did you get them, I guess, on board to this other way of life? Yeah, so I think uh, starting from not judging them, and, and this is also related a lot from my previous two years of guiding. So I knew a lot of them already because I was using them as, as captains informally or or they saw me sometimes in the ocean, they knew my face, so I wasn't like coming out of nowhere. They already knew something about me. And also the name of our cat is also very related to the animal because in that uh, moment when we start going out and swimming uh, in the nature, it turns out that uh, during the pandemic, it was uh, very easy or often to get to find orcas in the area where they live. And as fishermen, they have been always super scared and afraid about the animal because the, uh, they have seen them for many years and many times. But there is a, a thing with the fishermen that the orcas can kill them or they can damage their boats. Mm. So every time they saw orcas, they were like running away from it. And then these 12 crazy ladies come <laughs> and try to, and they say like, don't worry, this is fine. Like they are the best animals. This is the best encounter. Like we love them. And like the, getting to see these ladies, super talented, like with cameras and drones and everything to get to swim with this animal, no? That is huge and super impressive. So I think that that way we connected with them and there was like a, like an admiration and and surprise kind of relationship like these girls are super brave like <laughs> I, I don't know them but they are doing something crazy and and yeah so it started from that and then also because we were not judging them we knew that they were doing something that probably could be very bad for the sharks and they knew that we loved sharks but we also understand the reality they are artisanal fishermen. They have been working like that for five generations. That's the only way that they have been able to sustain their families. And we had to understand that. If you don't understand that, then it's really difficult to communicate because it's challenging for them. But the, obviously, if they had another option, they will do it. But they never had it. And they live in a desert in a very, very isolated community. And it's not easy to work in industry or work or grow vegetables no it's the desert there is nothing else <laughs> so they have been always related to the ocean and they rely on it and and they were the ones that were selected to work just on shark fishing so it's very important to understand the difference between an artisanal fisherman and an industrial fishing because we always talk fishing in general but the, these guys are trying to work in and use very selective um, techniques so they create the, less, the least impact because they worry about the resources. While they see the industrial fishing boats outside of their town catching what they catch in one year, they mm. catch it in one night mm. with their huge net. So it's, it's not comparable. And in Mexico, they are allowed to do it because the Mexican law doesn't really regulate that area. Mm. So they just see the impact and they see the reduction of the species. They see how sharks are not doing pretty well. And that's how like, they saw it as an opportunity. If we don't take it now and we don't work with these girls, 
probably it's going to be too late. And next year, probably we don't have enough money from catching sharks because they, they, they see the, the effect of, of all this reduction. No? So I think we came just at the right time and we had the right approach. And we still are learning a lot of things, like probably through the uh, months and now the years, we are learning how to make it more successful. And they are also like teaching us a lot of things, no? They are true naturalists and they know all the species, they know how to approach. Lastly, for our Women in Conservation Science series, we shared a compilation of advice from 12 women scientists on the show. Fifth is Natasha Babic, Eurasian brown bear researcher and PhD candidate at Monash University. Do you have any piece of advice or any like a message or anything that you would love to share with everyone listening from your journey and everything that you've been through essentially? Yeah, it's that's a that's a big one. I had a hard one, but yeah, I guess you always want to try and give advice. It doesn't sound cliche, but cliches exist for a reason. And that's like, you know, like I was saying earlier, you know, be be determined, be reasonable too, right? Because sometimes we set our expectations right up here and then it can be really hard and disappointing, especially when you're working with a conflict species. Like, let's be honest, there is a lot of heartache involved, but don't let it dishearten you because you have to keep in mind as a conservationist that, you know, you're doing it for the right reasons and without people like us, there's just no hope moving forward there needs to be people like us. And even if you, you know, especially as a PhD student, like the struggle of, you know, some of my people in my cohort, like, you know, all of us, even me sometimes, you know, suffering from like imposter syndrome, like, but I can't be doing a PhD. I can't be, you know, I'm not great yet. And, you know, I don't, sometimes there are days even I'm like, wow, I feel like I know nothing. I know nothing. But everything you do, every small little step that you do is contributing to something. And you have to start somewhere, right? You know, they say waterfalls start with like just a trickle at first so even when things seem really hopeless they're really not they're really really not there is always hope as long as you keep trying right but yeah you need to be kind to yourself and look after yourself as well and that's why you know you have have good supervisors try and surround yourself with some good people and just yeah don't give up don't take no and just keep the animals in mind and you can get through it definitely because it's hard it's really hard. It doesn't matter what level you're at. I think if you're doing a PhD, if you're not, if you're, you know, high level researcher, if you're entry level, like everyone has similar experiences, but we're here for the animals and for humans, right? It's important. Next up, we have Rose Bear Don't Walk, ethnobotanist and PhD student at the University of Montana. I always love to ask this one last question and it is, and you've, you have already said something similar, but if there's anything else, what advice do you have for anyone listening? Or like, what's a last message that if we don't take away anything, we could take mm-hmm. away this one thing, what would that be? That indigenous people don't have a monopoly on plants and that everybody can have and cultivate a loving relationship with the plants of their area. But when that relationship comes at the expense of the plants or indigenous people in an extractive way, it takes away from that relationship and that intention. So 
basically is you can go out in your landscape and you can have a, a, a fundamentally loving, reciprocal, gracious relationship with plants as indigenous peoples have had for thousands of years. But once you start commodifying and once you start treating a plant as a commodity or something to capitalize on or anything like that, that is when the plants will turn away from mm. you, from us. So don't go buy sage from Urban Outfitters because it was probably not picked by an indigenous person or it was picked in a way that probably damaged or destroyed the plant. And also you're paying $25 for it, which is like just gross to me. Um, <laughs> like, like trying to find ways to have that relationship with that plant in a more intimate and loving way, whether that's, you know, getting your sage from an indigenous person who actually goes out and knows how to, you know, forage these in good and ethical ways, or maybe like finding a way to pick it to yourself or anything like that. I think just in the, in the world of ecosystem management and the environment is that once we come to the point of extraction and commodification and capitalism, things start to go downhill. Seventh is DRN Smith DVM, wildlife veterinarian and the world's leading pygmy sloth researcher. If there is a message or a piece of advice or anything that you would love to give or say to everyone listening, what might that be? Well, I think that the most important thing is that we have to realize that we are living in the same place. All the human beings and all the living beings are in the same home. So we have to empathize with them too, even if it's a small animal. I mean, we always be more in contact with huge big cats, like, you know, because they are powerful. And, but there are other part of the species that need to be protected too. And we need to be aware of the way that we are behave has a consequence in the future. And we need to start to do our own um, effort to do the best um, trying to preserve what we have now and, and to continue uh, enjoying in the future, to continue enjoying in the future. So that is, is very important because probably our daily life is not showing or facing us what is happening in the forest or what is, because we are living in the city. And if something happened in the Amazonia or something happened in the, you know, in the scudo, in the forest, in the scudo, it's like, that is not going to affect me. Uh, yes, of course, the, everything is connected and it's going to affect us in some point. So we just need to be more close to our motherland because it's, it's important for us. And that is it, a snapshot of February's Women in Conservation Science series. We truly appreciate each and every one of you that followed the podcast series and engaged on our social channels throughout the month of February. We had a blast putting these episodes together and already have plans for a similar but different series in the near future, so stay tuned. As always, we want to thank you for being a part of the Rewatology community. 
If you have any questions about the episodes in the Women in Conservation Science series, head on over to the Rewildologist Facebook group and submit your questions on the homepage. If you would like to support the show, there are several options to do so. Some zero-cost ways include subscribing to the podcast on your favorite streaming app, leaving a rating and review to boost the algorithm, which will present the podcast to more listeners, signing up for the weekly Rewatology newsletter at rewatology.com, subscribing to the YouTube channel, and following the show on your favorite social media app. If you'd like to financially support the show and help us keep these stories on the airwaves, consider making a monetary donation at rewatology.com or purchase a piece of swag to show off your Rewatology love. At least 10% of proceeds from this podcast will be donated to our conservation partners. I'd also like to extend a special thanks to Heather Valley, the show's audio and video producer, and Focusrite for powering the podcast sound. If you'd like to see the Focusrite gear we use to record the show, head on over to rewildalgia.com and check out Nature Podcasting under the Resources tab. Until next time, friends, together we will rewild the planet. Hey, thanks again for listening to this episode of Rewildology. If you like what you heard, hit that subscribe button to never miss a future episode. Do you have a cool environmental organization, travel story, or research that you'd like to share? Let me know at rewildology.com. Until next time, friends, together we will rewild the planet.